0: Passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, now we're uh, turning our attention back to 2 Samuel. This morning, so 2 Samuel chapter 21. And as we look at this text, you'll notice very quickly as we jump into this passage, that uh, there's some rather difficult questions that are raised by this passage. Second Samuel chapter 1, the people of Israel are suffering from famine, and we'll see right at the very beginning that this famine actually is a form of divine judgment upon not so much Israel, but upon King Saul. It's because of the actions of King Saul. And what follows over the course of this story, is David actually handing over some of the descendants of Saul to be killed in the place of their deceased father or grandfather. And it's a problematic story. And it's one that might leave us not only wondering what on earth is going on here, but also maybe wondering how does this square with the idea of God's justice when people are not only suffering because of the sin of someone else, but also when children and grandchildren are put to death for the sins of their forefather. Now, there's an easy way out of this predicament, and the easy way out of this predicament is just to say, you know what, this text is proof positive that that the very notion of a good God is, is nonsensical. And that's what a lot of people will do when they come to a passage like this. They'll, they'll look at this text and say, well, you know, this passage is proof that God is not good, and, and, and the idea of a good God, if he even exists, is, is just uh, lunacy. And many of you, I would guess all of you are like me, won't want to reach that conclusion. And so we ask ourselves, well, is there another way to explain a passage like this? With that option off the table, there's this tension that that remains for us. How do we reconcile a gruesome story like this one with the character of a gracious and loving God? And that's what we aim to do this morning, to consider this in the light of what we know to be true of God and how this reveals what God is like. We don't want to whitewash the realities of evil, That's what the Bible does. The Bible never whitewashes the reality of evil. It contains a lot of gruesome stories because of the brokenness of the world. The Bible doesn't minimize, it doesn't downplay human evil, and because of that, there are passages like this one this morning where we might be left feeling a little bit uncomfortable and maybe wishing that there was something a little bit rosier in the pages of Scripture. And that's actually one of the reasons why we here at Crosswinds will preach through a book of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. We're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 21 this week, because last week we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 20. We work our way through books of the Bible, and a passage like this, we believe that this is a tangible application of Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul says something very similar, specifically about the Old Testament, when he is writing to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 15 says this, "...for whatever was written down in former days..." was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So when we consider this story, our primary prayer should be something like this. God, you have declared that this passage is profitable that it will equip me, it'll equip us for every good work that you've given this passage to your people for encouragement and hope. And so we ask for your help to do exactly that through your Holy Spirit. In fact, let's actually not just say this is what we should pray. Let's actually pray that right now. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we ask that you would accomplish exactly as you have said you would do through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we need your guidance and help in understanding and applying this text. And I pray that we would not shy away from it, but instead, just as Jacob wrestled with you until he received a blessing, that we would wrestle with this text until we receive a blessing of hope, that that we would leave from this text equipped for every good work. We ask that you would have mercy on us, O God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, thankfully for us, we're not looking at this text in isolation, but as a part of a broader story. And so we've been working our way through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. As we've been in 2 Samuel, we've seen repeatedly, over and over and over, our sermon series title, A Better King. That we have a need for a better king. For David, all that he has done, all the good that he has done, he leaves much to be desired. And last week we came to the end of the narrative of 1st and 2nd Samuel with this sobering description of David's David's legacy. And this morning is the beginning of this four chapter epilogue. This epilogue is a collection of stories, writings, songs that come from various points in David's reign, but the epilogue here is not an afterthought. It's not just hastily thrown together here. There's a clear structure in this epilogue that helps us to understand what's the purpose of this epilogue, and and what I want us to do is actually uh, look at that structure real briefly before we jump into our passage this morning. Now, bear with me, because this, I believe, will pay dividends not just this morning, but over the course of the next several weeks as we are looking at this epilogue. So let's go ahead and and throw that picture here of of the structure from this passage up. Uh, The epilogue begins with a story of divine judgments on Israel because of their sin, because of the sin of their king. Specifically here in this story, it's the sin of King Saul. And you'll notice that this is actually paralleled by the last story in 2 Samuel. It's a a story of divine judgment upon Israel for the sin of their king, except in the, the final story in chapter 24, it's the sin of King David next we have a collection of stories about david's military often referred to as his mighty men and that's again parallel, paralleled with the second to last section of this epilogue a more complete overview of david's mighty men and in the heart of the epilogue we have two stories two or excuse me two songs that have been written by david And the heart of this epilogue, these two songs, is the key to understanding what's taking place here in 2 Samuel chapter 21. What's the purpose of this story? And if you were to read those two songs, which I encourage you to do this week, you'll notice that both of those songs are about God's relationship with His King. The first song, it's very long, it's all of chapter 22, is a story, it's a song about God's deliverance of his king in the past. And chapter 23, the first 7 verses or so, the second song is about God about this hope for a future king that David himself has. And I think there's one line In these songs, a couple of verses that that are particularly helpful in giving us the lens or the framework through which we can evaluate what's happening here in chapter 21. So David, writing about this future king that he is longing for in chapter 23, says this, "'The God of Israel has spoken. "'The rock of Israel has said to me, "'When one rules justly over men,' Ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And so as we consider this passage this morning, one question that we should have at the back of our minds is this, is that true of David? Specifically here in this passage, is that true of David? Is he ruling justly? Is he like the morning light? Is he good for the people of Israel? And if you look at your sermon series, or excuse me, the sermon title for this morning, you'll see what my answer is to that. So that's the lens through which we understand these verses this morning. Let's let's go ahead and and look at this story. Uh, We'll notice that it breaks into three distinct parts, so let's go ahead and follow the flow of this passage, starting... With verses 1 and 2, our first section focused on famine and suffering and divine providence. Verse 1, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Now, remember what I said earlier. This epilogue is a collection of stories that come from throughout David's reign. So this is not chronological. It does not take place after the events of chapter 20. We actually don't know when this takes place in David's reign. It's not important. It just takes place in the days of David. Based off of verse 7 here, we can surmise that it probably takes place after 2 Samuel chapter 9, but that's about it. It takes place some point during David's reign. So at some point in David's reign, there is a famine. And it gets worse and worse over the course of time. One year goes by, two years goes by, three years goes by without a successful harvest. And families are left hungry, especially the poor, and and everyone is increasingly desperate. And I just can't imagine the helplessness David is feeling in those days, for this natural disaster is completely out of his control. And yet, that doesn't stop David from crying out to God, recognizing that God in his providence, or again, providence means his purposeful sovereignty, he recognizes that God is doing something behind every single act of nature, including this one. And so, David seeks the face of the Lord, and God in his mercy actually answers David. He tells David that this famine is the result of actions of King Saul that took place years earlier. Now, apparently, some point during the reign of Saul, Saul had sought to wipe out the Gibeonites that were living in the middle of Israel. Now, the Gibeonites were a Canaanite tribe that it actually tricked the people of Israel into sparing their lives when the, land, when the people of Israel entered into the promised land. And that story, if you're interested, is found in Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9 tells us that immediately after the destruction of Jericho, the Gibeonites were terrified. They were were afraid that they were going to, to face the same end. And so in order to fool the people of Israel into a peace treaty, they actually dressed up as though they had come from a very long distance. They have moldy bread that they had lying around. And so they act like this is something that we baked before we left and now look at it. And Israel buys into that deception. Israel is convinced, uh, you know what, yeah, these people must be from far off, and so they enter into a covenant with the people of Gibeon, and then just a couple days later, they find out that Gibeonites actually are from the land, and notice what they say in, uh, in Joshua chapter 9, starting in verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they, the people of Israel heard that they were neighbors, their neighbors, and that they had lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now the cities were Gibeon, Shephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. That's an important line. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. So a covenant, an oath had been made with this people in the name of the Lord and for centuries... These Gentile Gibeonites live in the middle of Israel, the center of Israel, because the people of Israel recognized, as we see in Joshua chapter 9, verse 20, that if they break their oath, if they break their covenant with these people, then the wrath of God is going to be upon them. And then we get to Saul. And Saul can't be bothered with things like keeping an oath especially if there is an opportunity to expand Israelite territory. And so he begins a campaign to exterminate the Gibeonites because, as we see in, in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 2, because of his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. In other words, Saul adopts a policy of ethnic cleansing for the benefit of of Israel. And God doesn't take kindly to Saul's actions here. To break a covenant or an oath that has been made in the name of God is in, when his name is invoked, it's no trivial thing. Breaking an oath when you take it in the name of the Lord is tantamount to saying God is not the type of God who can be trusted. Just like I broke my oath, God is the type of God who breaks his oaths. You can't trust him to keep his word. This is what actually is in mind in the Ten Commandments when it, takes, it talks about taking the Lord's name in vain. And so in response, because of Saul's actions, God sends a famine upon Israel to show his divine displeasure with Saul, with Israel as a whole. And that might surprise us. More accurately, it might, might offend us. Because the people who suffer the consequences of Saul's actions here are not the ones to blame. The people of Israel are not the ones to blame. And so we might ask, well, how is it just for God to send a famine upon those people who took no part in the shedding of blood of the Gibeonites? And I think the answer is twofold. First, we should recognize that sin rarely, if ever, only affects the person who commits the sin. We see this all the time in the world today. The ripple effects of sin always reach far beyond the one who commits it. But there's something else that's happening here. We should note that Saul is the king of Israel, and as such, he holds a specific position in God's economy, that in some way, he represents the people of God to God, before God, and they are held accountable for his faithfulness or lack thereof. You just look at 1 Kings, 2 Kings, or 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and you'll see this to be the case the nation of Israel follows the direction of their king's heart. And sometimes that's good, but most of the time that's bad. The two are inseparable in God's economy. Now we'll talk about that more here in a little bit, but let's go back to this story. So David has heard that this famine is rooted in something that Saul did, Saul's guilt, over the slaughter of the people of the the Gibeonites. And so he decides to reach out to the Gibeonites for counsel. Now, I think it's important to notice what is absent here. Earlier, David sought the face of the Lord as to the cause of the famine. Notice what he doesn't do here. He doesn't seek the face of the Lord when he's trying to figure out how to address the sin how to make things right. Instead, he seeks the counsel of the offended. He goes to the Gibeonites. Maybe it's well-intentioned, but it's hard not to see. Well, there's something that's lacking here when he goes to the Gibeonites and asks them, hey, what should I do? And so the Gibeonites, they arrive before David. This is our second section of our text. And we see David's attempt at justice begin to play itself out, starting in verse 3. And David said to the Gibeonites, "'What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord?' And the Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So here, here, notice what ha- is happening here with David. David goes from the revealed word of God. God has, has revealed himself through spoken word in verse 1. And he goes from there to speculation. He's speculating. He concludes... Not on what God has said, but he concludes that if God is sending judgment upon Israel for Saul's blood guilt, then the only way to address the issue is by satiating those who have been wronged. That's speculation. That's not from God. So he he reaches out to the Gibeonites and they hint at the solution, but they don't come out and say it. Verse 4, they basically say, hey, money's not going to fix this. Money's not going to address this, and we're not allowed to put people to death. Of course, the implication is clear. The only way that this is going to get better in our eyes is if someone dies. Now, David's response is not very kinglike. Notice he says, what do you say that I shall do for you? He's very servant, servant-like in this moment. The Gibeonites, say, seize the opportunity here presented by David, and they ask for seven of Saul's sons so that they can kill them in the place of Saul, hang them before the Lord as Saul's hometown of Gibeah. And the request for seven sons, probably symbolic of completeness, the declaration that they will hang before the Lord is not, again, saying that God is approving of this, but instead it's the Gibeonites' perception of what is taking place here. That's important to note because we should look at this and say, well, where is God? Where's God in the midst of this process? There's silence. And that silence actually speaks quite loudly, doesn't it? This is the request of the Gibeonites, not the requirement of God. And if we don't catch that, we'll miss the focus of this text. So the Gibeonites, they make this request, and in response, David simply says, okay, okay without a single consideration as to whether this is an appropriate measure according to God. In fact, you can, you can probably safely say that this isn't what God would have done. Because in God's explicitly revealed will, he says this in Deuteronomy, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So David is rejecting or ignoring the revealed word of God because of what he thinks is expedient and right. The story continues in verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth. Just a note there, this is a different Mephibosheth than what we saw in verse 7. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. So in spite of David's failure to seek God for wisdom on how to deal with this situation, he at least keeps his covenant commitment to Jonathan. That's what we see in verse 7, that David and Jonathan had entered into this covenant commitment that when David became the king, he would not wipe out Jonathan's family line. And that's what he keeps, that covenant commitment he keeps in verse 7. And that's again in contrast to Saul who started this whole mess. So he ignores or he leaves Mephibosheth alone and instead finds two sons of Saul and five grandsons of Saul and hands them over to the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites kill those sons and hang them outside of Gibeah on the first day of the barley harvest. Now, of course, there's no barley to actually harvest due to the famine. So we get to the end of verse 9, and we have this incredibly bleak picture. The scene is cold. It's sterile. It's matter-of-fact. And we're left wondering, is this truly justice, seven men executed, paraded for the the crime of their father or grandfather. We're left wondering, is is this what justice looks like? Is this what God had in mind? And the text gives us the answer in the final section, the final section of this passage, which might in our eyes be a somewhat surprising addition, verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. So Rizpah is this tragic figure here in verse 10. Her sons are taken from her. They are killed. They are turned into a monument Of Gibeonite justice. They're afforded no justice of their own. In fact, they are killed and their bodies are left hanging for the birds of the air or the beasts of the field to dispose of. And yet she refuses to let that happen. And so from the first day of the barley harvest, which would be late March or early April, until the first day of the the first rains of the rainy season, which would take place in late October or early November she stands guard mourning her sons and driving these wild animals away for several months does this break your heart what this woman is doing it's a pitiful sight it shows us the tragedy of this moment the tragedy of David's justice. Hear from Rizpah. Verse 11. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bashan where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. So Rizpah's months long vigil here eventually catches the attention of David, who realizes that he hasn't shown the same sort of courtesy to Saul and Jonathan after they died. This, this woman is more admirable than David in this moment. And so he issues these orders for the bones of, of Saul and Jonathan and these seven others to be collected and bury, buried with, with dignity in the tomb of Saul's family. And then, notice what happens. The the very end of verse 14. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So here is where the famine at long last ends. Notice that the text doesn't say that God responded to the pleas concerning the land after the execution of the seven descendants of Saul. That's not what the text says. It's here, only after there's a proper, proper burial, that God is willing to listen to the prayers for the end of the famine. And so we come to the end of this, and, and we're left, what exactly is it saying? It's complex, it's, it's confusing, it's not at all clear. What do we, what do we make of this passage Just a few observations that might lead us to some application. First, recall what I said about why Israel suffered because of Saul's disobedience. I mentioned that a king over God's people serves this representative role before God, and we see this elsewhere in Scripture. We can go to the very beginning of the Bible. Adam was the first king, if you will, And he, in his disobedience, affected all of humanity. He served as the representative of humanity, and in his rebellion against God, all of humanity has paid the price. As a part of the EFCA, our statement of faith says that we are sinners by nature and by choice. That's the first part there, that we are sinners by nature, that we have inherited this guilt from Adam, our representative, even as we're guilty of our own sinful actions, we have inherited that because of the choices of our representative king, Adam. Of course, there's more. When it comes to the king's representative role before God, Adam is not the only king whose obedience or lack thereof has affected countless others. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Here we have another picture of what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 5. And as I consider the suffering of the people of Israel because of the sin of Saul, my heart initially runs to this, this cynicism that says, well, that's not, that's not fair. Of course, when I consider the cross and Jesus' obedience being applied to me, Seldom do I say, well, that's not fair. That's not what I deserve. And that's the reality. It's not. But that's the wondrous mystery of the gospel. Not that that we have inherited guilt of our forefather Adam's disobedience, but that we have wonders of wonders inherited the the reward of the obedience of, of the second Adam, the true king. Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's not, and I'll I'll be the first to say, that's not the, the main focus of this passage. It's a tangent that, that is there, but it's not the heart of the passage. So what is this text trying to communicate? And, And I think it's just this tension. This tension is, is here And we would do well to to dwell in and live in the the tension of this passage because there are two things that are clear in this passage. On the one hand, we have the Gibeonites, and they deserve justice because of the actions of Saul. And David attempts to bring them justice. And yet, on the other hand, what the Gibeonites ask for is not justice. And what David does is not justice. We can just look at what happens to Rizpah. And her suffering, and we can see that, that that is not justice, that it is inadequate, that it is a failure. David's attempt at, at divine justice fails miserably. You know, in a similar vein, David's actions in handing over these men to the Gibeonites, it, it causes even more suffering, more havoc in the lives of others. Rizpah, again, the, the most notable, the most extreme, but she's surely not the only one here who is suffering because of Saul, because of David, because of the Gibeonites. And even when David comes to his senses and, and he gives a proper burial to these men and to Saul and, and Jonathan, we're still left with this unmistakable conclusion that, that that's compassion. That's wholly inadequate We get to the end of this text and we're left wanting something, needing something more. You see, there's a tension in this text and we, we cannot run away from it. We can't try to, to just resolve it easily because David does good, but he also does bad. David acknowledges that there is a need for justice and the men who are asking for it, that they really deserve justice and yet what they ask for is vengeance. They ask for something that's, that's completely different, and so we're, we're left, how do, we make a, uh, how do we make sense of the mess that sin causes? I think we could go even further here as we consider David's actions. I, I suggested that David falls short in his role as king over God's people by not seeking God's guidance on how to address God's wrath for, for Saul's sin. Notice in, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, which we'll look at in, in about a month or so, this parallel passage, David addresses his guilt by running to God in repentance. He doesn't try to create justice on his own. He, he acknowledges his sin before God. I think that's what God is asking for in, in this passage as well. I also suggested that he breaks the commands of, of Deuteronomy chapter 24. He puts the sons to death for the sins of their father, breaking the commands of God. Alistair Begg, he's a pastor in Cleveland. He suggests that David might keep his covenant covenant commitment to Jonathan, Saul's son, but he breaks his promise, his oath to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And Saul said to David, Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. David promised that he wasn't going to touch the offspring of Saul. And what do we find here? He's putting them to death. Again, this is another text where David falls short of what we need from a king. In light of that, I think this text, just like so many others in 2 Samuel, points us to to our need for a better king, for the Lord Jesus. Because in this story that is about failed justice, that's about inadequate compassion and mercy, ultimately it, it points us to our great hope that we find in the gospel, and that's simply this, at the cross we find justice and mercy for the suffering. It is at the cross that we find justice and mercy for the suffering. Consider the Gibeonites. They were not at all wrong to ask for justice here. It's a good thing. It is a holy thing to long for justice, especially if you have been greatly wronged just like they were. You talk to someone who has experienced some unthinkable evil directed toward them or their family, and it is not at all wrong for them to ask and hope for the perpetrator to be brought to justice. But this text leaves us wondering who is going to administer that justice, because David's actions here show just how easily earthly justice, however well-intentioned it might be, misses the mark, but not at the cross not at the cross. The cross is the assurance that God is good, and as a part of his goodness, he is just. He will not let wrong go unpunished, even unthinkable wrongs like those described in 2 Samuel chapter 21. The gospel and the cross give hope to those who have suffered injustice, that those who have wronged you will not get away with it. They will either be held to account on the final day of judgment, or Jesus has borne that justice on his own body, on the cross, that he took the justice that their sin deserved. The cross gives us this unfathomable comfort when we experience injustice that we can trust God because he knows what he is doing and he is completely trustworthy. And yet at the same time, the cross doesn't just speak of justice, it also speaks of this mercy for those who are experiencing the anguish of suffering Consider here at the beginning how great of a mercy it is for God to speak to David as to the cause of the famine. God didn't have to do that. God doesn't have to speak. It is a great mercy that God speaks, that God reveals Himself. Even more, we could consider Rizpah, this woman who needs mercy from her king in her suffering. And David's response is inadequate. The cross gives great comfort. It gives gives us great hope because it is not only a place of justice, it is also a place of great mercy. It is rooted in God's compassionate heart, his love for his creation. At the cross, we find justice and mercy for the suffering. In the midst of the mess, and that's probably the best way to describe this passage. In the midst of the mess of this passage, don't lose sight of that hope, that we have a better king who gives us exactly what we need. King Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. thank you for this passage that leaves us dissatisfied, that leaves us wanting more, needing more, needing something and someone better. and thank you for providing exactly that. Thank you for giving us a better king. God, in your mercy, we ask that you would help us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of frustration, to fix our eyes on Jesus, knowing that he is good, that you are good, and all the wrongs that we might experience, all the injustice that exists in this world today will one day be righted when he comes and establishes his kingdom in its fullness. And so God, help us to be a people who live in light of that reality and that truth, who hope in that reality. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.